Let's pray together. Our Lord, we consider now that this word that you speak right now is for us today. Lord, I ask that you would open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, our hearts to be open. Lord, I ask that you would lift up this vision of Jesus into our hearts, that it would be the biggest thing in our life. Lord, that you would move, that other things that distract us, discourage us, that make us feel dismayed, would move aside because Jesus takes up residence in our lives and is the big thing that we live for. Lord, only you can do this by your spirit. And so we pray for you to move amongst us today. I need your help right now. Lord, I need your grace. I need you to humble my heart. Uh, Lord, I need clear speech and wisdom. Uh, Lord, to rightly divide your word of truth. And so I ask for that now. And I ask for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, it's good to be with you today. Uh, did anyone uh, watch the tennis yesterday? I just caught a snippet of the Alcaraz versus TFO game, and it was awesome. Five sets was going really late into the night, and these men were going at it. It's amazing to see people really in the prime of their life, these elite athletes competing. And some of us feel a little bit like, and we're going to look at this this morning, that spiritual warfare is like this tennis match between God and Satan. And they are battling it out, you know, hitting you know, drop shots and these hard serves and one will win at the end of the day. And I want to tell you that is a terrible illustration for spiritual warfare. It is not like that. In our text today, we are told that there is a great conflict, that there is a great conflict. And Daniel is about to have a vision which actually spreads over a couple of chapters. So this is the introduction to the vision. We get a behind-the-scenes view of what spiritual warfare is really like. And then uh, it tells us of the things to come. Remember that the book of Daniel is uh, set uh, from about 600 BC onwards uh, to the, you know, the early 500s uh, through the life of Daniel, a prophet of God. And uh, during that time, there were some tumultuous events happening, but there was more to come. There were more tumultuous events to come and God was revealing the nature of those things through his prophet Daniel. And so in chapter 10, we get a bit of an introduction. And then chapters 11 and 12 really continue the one vision. So we'll look at those over the next couple of weeks from chapters 11 and 12. But here in chapter 10, we get an insight behind the scenes into spiritual warfare. And it is not like a tennis match. It is the rule and reign of one who appears in a great vision to Daniel. This figure with, uh, his, it says, his face was like the appearance of lightning and his eyes like flaming torches. There is one who rules from heaven and will bring his will to completion at the last day. There is no tennis match. And yet there is a war being waged. And so we hear a little bit later that there are these angels uh, fighting on God's behalf behind the scenes. And these other figures, this prince of Greece, this prince of Persia, 
these spiritual beings which seem to be working behind these ancient nations and powers of the world. And so whilst there's no competition between God and Satan because God is the creator and Satan is a created being, they're not even in the same category. There is a war at place. And so whilst we ignore that illustration of a tennis match, we realise there is a spiritual reality behind the scenes going on today and we must not ignore that. And God has much to teach us today. I want to give you a little bit of context uh, before we get into uh, the meat of this um, chapter. And the context is this, that uh, this is around, Daniel's about 80 years old by this time. Uh, So he's lived a life in obedience and faithfulness to God. He was a a young man. He was probably a a wise young man. He uh, would have been um, selected out of the young people in Jerusalem and taken into captivity into a land, the land of Babylon, which is very far away. This was part of God's judgment on Israel. He was taken very far away and was put through a training program to make him Babylonian, to brainwash him and to conform him to the culture around him. But Daniel said, no. Daniel said, I will live for God in a culture that opposes God. And he stood out. And he became a national leader. He became part of the government. And he served in in the public service for almost all of his life. Someone was, uh, I was chatting with someone this week, you know, and and they preached on Daniel before. And someone came up and said, I wish I was like Daniel. You know, I had the faith of Daniel. And uh, this person said to that person, Daniel, for almost all of his life, was just a regular guy who got up, went to work, came home, went to bed, and did the same thing the next day. Yet he trusted in God. But Daniel, at this point, an older man, is distressed. He's having a bit of a personal crisis because God has begun to return his people back to Jerusalem, back to Israel, out of exile And he's not going with them. God has begun to fulfill his promise. We remember uh, in the book of Jeremiah that it was uh, foretold that God's people would be in exile for 70 years and then they would return in a miraculous way. And we do see it is a miracle. God moved one of the Babylonian kings to uh, send God's people back to the land of their origin. But Daniel wasn't going with them. And it seems that God hasn't fulfilled all that he had promised yet. So Daniel is in a bit of crisis because he'd been praying, and we've looked at that in chapter 9. He's been praying and seeking that God would do things, and yet God hasn't fully answered his prayer. Daniel's crisis is that he's in a time of unanswered prayer, unfulfilled promises. And Daniel is concerned about his place in God's plan. What about me? That is the context in which we get Daniel chapter 10. And God peels back the curtains and shows us what's really going on behind the scenes. Now, I want to ask you, are you in a state of unanswered prayer? Are you in a state where 
You believe that God ought to do things, but he hasn't done them yet. God ought to do something, but he hasn't done it yet. Are you concerned about your place in God's plans? What about me? What will God do with me? This text is good news for people who are in a bit of crisis. And we're going to see that spiritual warfare is the way that God is working, but it is different to perhaps the way that it's been explained to us before. In, um, in the outback, uh, there's a river. It's called the Fink River. It is a dry riverbed almost all of the year. It uh, sort of starts around Alice Springs and works its way uh, towards uh, Lake Eyre uh, in Central Australia and South Australia. Um, it's, it's also known in the local language as the Larapinta River. And this river is quite unique. It's supposedly one of the oldest rivers uh, in the world. Uh, it is, um, has several uh, ponds or billabongs. That's a great Australian word, isn't it? Billabong. Uh, has several ponds along the way, but it almost never runs. It almost never runs, this river, uh, except every now and then there is a great flood. And what is just several connected ponds that have a dry riverbed between them becomes a raging torrent of water. And this inland salt basin becomes an oasis of life. And the current spiritual situation in this country is a little bit like the Fink River. We see pockets of life. We see pockets of God working, perhaps in our own. This might be your personal story. We see pockets of God working in our life. You know, a, a, a billabong, a little bit of an oasis of life. We might see a few churches where God is working, but on the whole, it's dry and it's desert. And not much is going on. And I think that's a little bit how Daniel felt. He wanted to see a torrent of God's power come and work in his life. And he hadn't seen it yet. He wanted to see a torrent of God's power come and work amongst his people. But he hadn't seen it yet. It was a trickle. But he wanted the rushing waters. And so I think we've talked about this on a personal level, but it's bigger than you and me, isn't it? This spiritual warfare thing. It's on a national scale. We see that in our text. It's on a, the scale of empires and nations. That God desires to do great work amongst whole people groups. But he has, doesn't seem to have done it yet in this country. We're in a time of spiritual decline and so God is peeling back the curtains to show us how he is going to work. So there's three aspects to this. I hope that helps by way of introduction. There's three aspects to this in our text. There's what we do, firstly. Secondly, there's what God does. And thirdly, there is how we respond. So what do we do? Well, Daniel, it says in verse 2, was mourning for three weeks. 
Verse 3, I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. Daniel is doing a form of what we would call today fasting, but they call it mourning because fasting is the abstinence of food, whereas Daniel is giving up the luxuries that he would normally have. Uh, Lent is probably the best modern equivalent that we have. Uh, For the 40 days preceding Easter each year, we do this at our church, uh, we encourage people to abstain from their usual luxuries, you know, whether that is not eating meat, whether that's abstaining from alcohol or coffee or something, for a season of intensified prayer. Someone said to me uh, just this week that fasting is a way of raising the sail in the boat and asking God to bring some wind. It's intensifying our prayer. And that is what Daniel is doing. He abstained from meat. He was a meat eater. He wasn't just a vegetarian, as we read about earlier in the book. He did eat meat, and he's abstaining from that. He's abstaining from alcohol. And he's even abstaining from these special lotions that he would have put on his skin. Remember, Daniel is an older man. He lives in a desert climate. And so he would have applied special lotions uh, to his skin to look after it. And he's even refraining from those. So he's refraining from all the comforts of life that he normally partook in. Why? To intensify his prayer. Intensify his prayer. If you want to see God work in your life and normal prayer is not working, intensify your prayer. If you want to see God do a work beyond you, beyond the ordinary things, if you have unanswered prayers, if you are not sure what your place in this world that God has made, that your place in God's plan is, intensify your prayer. That is the purpose of Lent. That is the purpose of abstaining from food. We can't do it for that long. Three weeks might be a bit hard for us. But we can certainly let go of our comforts so that God would do something. We hoist up the sail and say, blow. Holy Spirit, come. That is what Daniel is doing. He's intensifying his prayers. So my question to you, and we see this really in every season of revival in the world where God does a great work amongst his people. The people intensify their prayers. Second thing that we do is humble ourselves before God. Humble ourselves before God. Daniel lays himself low before God. We read about this in verse 12. This is uh, the angel speaking to Daniel. It says, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. We know the Bible tells us God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is a common thread throughout the Old and New Testaments. God is against proud people, but he will work with humble people. Daniel, through this season of mourning, is humbling himself before God. He's humbling himself before God. Pride is a great danger to the individual. Pride is a great danger because it deceives us into into thinking things are going well when they're really going badly. 
Pride is a great danger because like blinkers on a horse that has to focus on the track, sometimes we can't see what's really going on around us. And that was really Daniel's heart, wasn't it? To understand what was going on, that God would take off the blinkers so that he might really see. Humble ourselves before a mighty God. Some of us, like Daniel, have got have become aware that God seems to work this way because we've been a Christian for a while. Daniel is probably in his 80s. He's been a believer in God for some time and there are old channels in his heart that he knows he needs to return to and let them be filled with water again. There are old channels where he knows he needs to humble himself before God with intensified prayer. Because he knows that that is the way that God works. And some of us need to go back to the old channels. Some of us need to make them anew in our hearts that God would work again in our lives. It is the same way that God came into our lives as Paul, I think, shared so well. He reaches into our lives. He reaches in. But he wants to do it again. And so to create that channel that his power would flow through it, we need to intensify our prayers and humble ourselves before God. In, on the border between Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, there is a place called the Aral Sea. Uh, it was formerly the fourth largest lake in the world, it was the centre of the region for agriculture, fishing and natural beauty. It was an amazing place. You know, all around it was sort of desert and yet there was this oasis of life in the midst of it. But in the 1960s, the Soviet Union had an idea. They wanted to create a new industry through cotton and so they diverted two of the major tributary rivers toward this inland sea in order to irrigate large, enormously large cotton fields. They even knew behind the scenes that this would destroy the Aral Sea. And so it did. What many people didn't realise was that in 1948, the Soviet Union began a biological and chemical weapons testing site on an island in the middle of the Aral Sea. They used to drop bombs and have weaponised smallpox that would go off in the midst of this sea. And so as the sea began to drain away and all that was left was a salty plain, the wind began to pick up in these toxic dust storms which, would be, which began from the 1960s onwards to assault the surrounding people of this Aral Sea. Many people have picked up that this was one of the worst ecological disaster, man-made ecological disasters that we know of in our modern era. People have many health issues and a much shorter life expectancy. Many more women die during childbirth and children die during childbirth as a result of this terrible ecological disaster. And they refuse to let go of the prosperous cotton fields. 
It's as if evil has desecrated more and more and it continues to destroy what remains. Do you know some places in the world um, when humans leave a ecological disaster zone, they talk about it rewilding. Thing, things seem to get better on their own. You know, the natural environment seems to recover without human intervention. But here, this is not the case. It is desolate and dead. They, many people believe that it is absolutely irreversible. One uh, journalist who went to see it for himself said this, The RLC left you with the sense that for all our genius, we enjoy a habitable planet by the grace of such fragile providence. Now, I don't agree with fragile providence, but I do agree that only God can intervene in this situation. And it is the same for us in this country and even in our lives. The difficulty of what we do is it is limited. God must do something. We can do our part. Daniel can mourn for three weeks. He can intensify his prayers. He can set up the sail. But God must do something. The church in this country is in peril lest God does something. What about the faith that you have? What about your own life and where God has you and your own unanswered prayers? Lest God does something, nothing will happen. Which brings us to what God does. The first thing that God does is he reveals his glory. We see this in verses 5 and 6. Daniel has a vision. At the end of his three weeks of intensified prayer, him humbling himself, what, does he, what happens? God interrupts. He has a habit of doing that, we know, in the book of Daniel. Verse 5. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. This reminds us of Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man interrupts the vision that Daniel's having of these terrifying beasts. The Son of Man just turns up. Here again, God turns up. Now, many people question, is this really God in the text? Is, uh, who is the figure? Who is it that has this terrifying appearance? Well, actually, God's done this before and he'll do it again. In Exodus 33... Moses asks God, or really tells God, that's a bold prayer, isn't it? He says, show me your glory. And God says, if you saw my face, you would die. So he hides him in a cleft of the rock. And the glory and the goodness of God passes by. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has a vision of God. And it's too terrible for him to look at. He lies prostrate Face down on the floor, all he can see is the train of the robe. And it's a vision. He can't even look up. And he's overcome with sorrow because of his sin. 
In Daniel, we see the same pattern. In Ezekiel, we see the same pattern again of a vision of God in great power, in great majesty, just like this. But the one which reveals the identity of this person is in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 12. And it says, Then I turned to see, this is John, the Apostle John speaking, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the shining sun in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. We heard in our reading of Daniel chapter 10 that Daniel also fell at his feet as though dead and it was just a vision. Jesus has turned up. He's here and he is fearsome. He is terrible and he is great. Notice that Daniel cannot stand Verse 9, even though he's awoken, he cannot stand on his own two feet. He trembles. Verse 15, Daniel cannot speak. Verses 16 and 17, Daniel cannot even listen because he's seen the glory of God, Jesus Christ himself. When it comes to spiritual warfare, we often have the wrong idea. Even when it comes to, uh, we we get to the New Testament and we get to Ephesians chapter 6 and we look at the armour of God and we think that it's about us, that is, like seeing God do a work in the world, seeing God break out against the powers of evil. It's about us putting on these armour and if we put on the armour, then God work, but we don't realize what this armor is. A helmet of salvation, a breastplate of righteousness, the shoes, you know, of readiness of the gospel of peace, a belt of truth, a sword of the spirit. But we forget that all of these things, the shield of faith, we forget that all of these things arise from a great warrior king himself. All of these things are actually about Jesus. All of them. And here we get a picture of a great and glorious warrior king who says, I will fight for you. The central aspect of spiritual warfare is God saying in his son, Jesus Christ, I will fight for you and I will step in. I will intervene. When you seek me, I will come. It's not about you, it's about him. God is here to work and win his battle. He will do it. And his glory silences his people. There's this beautiful um, verse in a psalm that says, Be still and know that I am God. The first thing that you need to do 
when you hear that Jesus is ready to fight your battles for you is be still. You may not even be able to look up. You don't need to say anything and you may not even be able to listen. Just know that he's there and he's there for you. So what does God do? He reveals his glory. The second thing he does is produce terror. Terror. Verse 7. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision. But a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. They got out of there as soon as they could. They didn't see the vision, but they felt it. Daniel obviously had some people with him. Uh, when he was walking beside the Tigris River at this end of the three weeks of mourning. He may not even have told anyone that he was mourning. You know, I mean, he didn't have the lotion on. His skin might have looked bad, perhaps, you know. But they were terrified. When God turns up, when the light comes, the darkness flees. In the New Testament... Uh, just after, um, I mean, Jesus used to hang out with fishermen. I just love that, by the way. These aren't like philosophers and scholars and sort of kings and, you know, like high priests. Fishermen. Anyway, they went out fishing and they didn't catch anything all night. And so Jesus, you know, tells them, gives them a different method. And they don't believe him because they're the professionals and Jesus, you know, is a bit of a layman, or so they think. Anyway, the boat starts to sink because they catch so many fish at the direction of Jesus. And Peter sees what's going on. He sees what's really going on. The curtains are torn back. And Luke 5 verse 8, it says, But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Do you get it? When the light comes into the darkness, the darkness flees. That's the power of the one who we call the Son of Man, who Daniel knows from chapter 7 as the Son of Man, that is the one in chapter 10 who has eyes of lightning. In Revelation, his eyes of fire. This same one is unmatched in power. The one thing I want you to get this morning in spiritual warfare is that Jesus will win. The one thing that I want to happen in your mind and in your heart is for Jesus to be bigger than anything else. Him to be the supreme vision that you have. That is the greatest thing that we can have in our lives, knowing that Jesus himself will fight for us. That he's willing to move in. He's going to invade some new territory and he's starting with you. That's what God wants to do in our hearts today. But for those that are on the wrong side of him, produces terror. Which begs the question, why didn't Daniel flee like everyone else? Because he'd met this one before. The Son of Man had appeared to him before. Though he could not stand, though he could not speak, though he couldn't even listen, he knew that this was the one he was waiting for. Spiritual warfare is about Jesus fighting for his people. Uh, I've been away on a spiritual retreat this week. Isn't that great? 
I went away with a few pastors uh, in our network, lead pastors in our network. We have Roland and Elaine Foreman here this morning. Thank you so much for coming over. Roland uh, and Elaine, I've um, come over from New Zealand. Uh, Roland's a pastor uh, and a leader in a few um, parachurch movements. And I've uh, taken us through some time of spiritual reflection and uh, just deepening our faith in Jesus, really. It's been really tremendous. So thank you. But one of the things that we did was we went, um, uh, as part of our time together, went to a place called Munta. And uh, one of the reasons that I am quite interested in that particular town is because in 1875 there was a revival there. And as many of us don't know that um, Munta was actually the second largest uh, town in South Australia in 1875 after Adelaide because there was a large copper mine a very large copper mine there. And so people would move uh, from all over the world. A lot of Cornish people moved there. They have these amazing Cornish pasties, which we were able to taste as part of our spiritual experience. <laughs> and uh, it was just an incredible place. But what, one of the things you'll know, find fascinating, is the size of the churches. They're huge. There's this one church in particular, the Moon to Mines Methodist Church, a bit of a mouthful. It seats 1,250 people. Because at one stage it was full. Would you believe it? 1875. Something happened in 1875. There was a death in one of the mines in Munter. Uh, a man uh, died as a mining accident and both his sons were present working with him. And so there was a funeral. And there was a sense that God was moving. It was during an era where, it was the, sort of the back end of the Second Great Awakening, where God was doing things all around the world. And so the Methodist churches were kind of revivalist churches. They were looking for God to do some great work amongst them. But they hadn't seen it yet. There was sort of an anticipation. They used to have a prayer meeting after every service, which I'd like to do, for where people could respond to God. But they hadn't really seen anything happen yet. And they at this untimely death... People felt God was doing something. And then a young woman in the congregation died in one of the churches there. And at the funeral, people spoke of the great faith of this young woman who was a woman of prayer. And God did something in that town that over the course of just several months, about 3,000 people were converted. 10% of the population came to faith in Jesus through two untimely deaths because people began to realise that something is greater than what we see here. There is something more going on. So what does God do? He reveals his glory and he produces terror, but he does it because he wants a people for himself. I was a bit sad that the Queen died this week. I'm not much of a monarchist, I've got to be honest, but she was a woman of faith and that just struck me that someone could remain as a woman of faith and continue in it when everyone else is giving it away. In 2011, during a Christmas message, she said this, Although we are capable of great acts of kindness, history teaches us that we are sometimes needing saving from ourselves, from our recklessness or our greed. 
God sent into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher nor a general, important though they are, but a saviour with the power to forgive. She knew there was someone greater than her. I loved what was said earlier, that this great woman, this queen, who many of us revere, has laid her crown down as she worships him. As we will all do. Because we'll all be at the same level before the feet of that great one. And it won't be in terror, but in tears of joy. What a beautiful picture. But we have an even greater monarch. One who is a general. A warrior king. And yet he became a humble servant. John chapter 1 says, God became flesh and dwelt among us. The Christian story is that this great warrior king, the one who says, I'll fight for you, came to fight for us as one of us. He stepped into humanity. You know how uh, Paul said earlier that God invaded his life. Well, God invaded humanity. But he did it as a humble servant. The opposite to the way we think a general ought act. He stepped down, humbled himself. And it all culminated that our great warrior king, and and we, we love these stories, they appeal to our hearts. He would die for the sake of others that he would make a great and wondrous sacrifice so that others would be saved, that he would take the hit so that others would be okay. And he did it. He took the hit for sin. You and I should have been on that cross at Calvary at a place called Golgotha outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago for our sin, dying for our sin. But he said, I will do it. And so he went up on that cross in our place for us the great warrior king died for his people. But unlike the queen, whose death we proclaim all around the world so that everyone knows, he lives. He rose on the third day. And so what did the church do? They, they went around proclaiming that he died But on the third day, he rose and our king lives. Our warrior king lives. If he's not alive, it doesn't matter. But because he lives, it all matters. We know that we have a warrior king who went through death for us. We know that at the centre of our greatest battle can be one who will step in and has stepped into history and into our own lives and has taken the greatest enemies that we have had, sin, Satan and death, and taken them to the cross. But because he lives, we can face tomorrow as the the hymn goes. Lastly, how do we respond? Well, I want you to notice that an angel turns up and there's actually a pattern pretty much in in all of um, prophetic literature, vision, then interpretation. There's a vision from God 
and then there's an angel or someone turns up to explain the vision. So we see that pattern over and over again. And here, the angel needs to do something to Daniel so that he can handle what's to come. Notice that the, the angel touches Daniel. He awakens him in verse 10 and then tells him to stand. In verse 16, he touches his lips so that he can speak. In verse 18, he touches his ears so that he can listen. Notice that Daniel is strengthened again and again. God says to him, Daniel, O man, greatly loved, and we covered that recently in our sermon series. God has to do something to us so that we might do something for him. This great vision of Jesus is not just to be known, it's not just to be felt, it's to be experienced. God's going to touch your life. That's what needs to happen. Well, I think for those of us who are Christians in the room today, we'll remember that God touched our life at some point. You know, God touched your life when you came to faith in Him, perhaps as a child, perhaps as an, an adult, perhaps in your later years, God touched your life. And if He hasn't yet, He wants to. He's ready. Today is the day of salvation, says the Lord of hosts. Today might be the very day. But that's not it. Because the God who saves you wants to touch you again. He wants to do something in your life again. The fascinating thing about conversion is it is when you stopped depending on yourself and said, I need Jesus. I need him. I need the one who died for my sins and rose again from the dead that he might give me eternal life. I need him. You may not have been able to articulate it in those words, but that's what your heart was doing. You needed him. And it is in the same way that God wants you to humble yourself so that it is him that you reach out to because then he will touch your life. I've got to finish pretty quickly. So I want to say that there's five areas in our, that I believe that God wants to touch our lives. This church, you and me, five areas. And these are five things that we're going to have to invite this great warrior king in to do in our lives. The first area is apathy to spiritual things. I tell you, this is one of my big bugbears for myself. And for you, we are way too apathetic. But we need a touch of God to change it. Because I can't do it. And you can't do it, but he can. Second, we need a touch of God in our lives for parents taking responsibility for discipling their children. Let me say that again. For parents taking responsibility for discipling their children. I feel the spiritual warfare, I tell you, when I want to go to bed, but I need to read my children the Bible. It's a bit ordinary, isn't it? I feel the spiritual warfare where I want to tell the kids to go away because I want to have some me time, and yet I need to explain to them that what they're upset about, that Jesus can answer. 
Train your child in the way he should go, and when he's older, he will not depart from it. But parents, to the parents in the room, we cannot handball responsibility for the discipling of our children. You can't handball it to a Sunday service for an hour and a half. You can't handball it to a Christian school. It doesn't work that way. Do you know why we have such a drop-off rate when they hit university or they become adults? One of the reasons is because we're not discipling our children. So parents, this is a place of spiritual warfare. And I'm not telling you to get better. I'm telling you you need a touch from God. Because if Jesus is bigger in your life, if he's the number one, then you're going to care about it enough to do something about it. I can tell you that. Number three, unanswered prayer in evangelism. Gee, we need a touch from God in that part, don't we? We feel it. We pray for the same people, don't we? Church, don't we pray for them? And they're not saved yet, but they can be. We want to see a move of God. We need a touch of God so that Jesus becomes so big in our hearts that we have what's called the prayer of faith and that God would do a great move. And I believe that he wants to. Number four, I'm going quickly. I can explain these in detail for you at another time. We need a touch from God in mental health breakthroughs. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Because often when we have unanswered prayer, if when we're wondering what is God doing in our lives, what is our place in the world? How much he wants to step in. Our good warrior king who humbled himself became the lamb who was slain. This great warrior king in Revelation chapter 1 loves you. He loves those who are afflicted with mental health issues and he wants to step in. And so we need a touch from God in that one. And lastly, number five, habitual sins. And those of us who are in these know we need a touch from God for we cannot do it ourselves because we keep falling back into it. Anger, pride, lust, whatever it is. We need God. We need our great warrior king to come for us. And he's promised that he will. Okay, guys, I'm going to pray now. I'm going to invite the band to come up. Actually, no, I'm going to change things up. I'm sorry, band. You're not going to come up. I'm going to pray. And then if you want to be prayed for, or if you want to pray, I want you to come to the front. We're going to do things a bit differently today. Ask a couple of our leaders as well, a few of our leaders to come forward. If you just want some prayer, please do that. Yeah, the coffee machine will be firing all those kinds of things uh, as we finish our service. But I know that there's people here today that need a touch from God. And I think I'm one of them. You know, I want to I take seriously the responsibility of discipling my children. So we're just going to end in prayer. You can pray where you are. But if you'd like to pray with someone, I invite you to come forward. Um, and you can just start praying on your own. For those leaders around, please just start praying with people and we'll finish in that way. And if this is uncomfortable for you, feel free to work your way out. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time now. We need you. Well, Jesus, we need you. Our great warrior king, our great monarch who died and yet lives. And Lord Jesus, we ask that you would touch our lives. We ask that you would move today. 
Uh, so we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please come forward. If you'd like some prayer, feel free to pray where you are. We're very welcome to work your way out.